you have your Bible this morning, we're going to jump off into Genesis chapter 29 today. Genesis chapter 29. There's always something that I've appreciated about the scriptures, about God's word. One of the things that I appreciate about God's word is that the word of God does not water down or sugarcoat. Um, it doesn't try to paint pic- people in unrealistic pictures or light that um, is not um, very authentic. And, and what I mean by that is, is that when the Bible talks about the people of faith and gives us these accounts in Scripture when it comes to people like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Peter and the disciples, and is that we see them and we see them completely flaws and all, right? Failures and all. And I think that that's very, very important and very, very telling. Number one, it speaks to the authenticity of the Word of God because of many of these people who are writing and taking accounts of themselves, if they really wanted to, uh, you know, embellish their own testimony to make themselves look better than they were, they obviously would have done that, right? I mean, we hate to have to be honest about our failures and have to, you know, admit those things. But here we see in many time, in many cases, the scriptures, uh, the people who are actually writing the scriptures down about themselves are very open and honest and say, "This is where I blew it. This is these are these are the, the areas of my life where I was severely flawed." And, and I fail greatly. And I think it's important that we, that we have it that way and that we understand it that way is because we can identify with that, can we not? <laughs> because all of us have blown it. All of us fail. All of us are flawed, right? And then you're going to see that in today's passage, in today's message as we look at Jacob and his wives. Actually, he was going to have two wives and You'll see it gets gets really dysfunctional even beyond that as we look further into that story. But there's another thing I want to say off the top about this is that is that here's another principle of scripture that we need to be very careful about because I think people get confused. Is that just because the Bible is descriptive about a person or a situation does not mean that the Bible is prescriptive. Now, what do I mean by that? Just because the Bible describes things that are happening and choices that people make and things that, that uh, how they unfolded in real time does not mean that God necessarily agrees or endorses or is pleased with those things. Y'all understand what I'm saying? So, so we're going to see that in the scripture today because there's a lot of people that really struggle with this idea that you know, how could Jacob, who is one of the patriarchs of our faith, have two wives and actually he had two wives and two other concubines. And we're like, does that mean that God thought that that was okay? No. But the way that the Bible conveys the truth and the reality, the historical account of these men or these people, or the people of the faith, is that he's just going to tell us the way it was, warts and all, flaws and all. He's not trying to hide anything. He's not trying to paint anybody in an unrealistic light. So he's describing the life of Jacob. He's describing what happened when he got married to Leah and Rachel, Leah and Rachel, but that does not mean that God is happy with the way that it went down or he was endorsing it or by any way pleased with it. So we got to be careful because sometimes the, the Bible describes some really messed up dysfunctional situations and failures and flaws and sins and things that, that we, you know, that, that people have done very, very wrong. 
but that does not mean the Bible's endorsing those things or telling us that those things are okay. And that's the, that's the case right here in Genesis 29. And so what we're going to find out today is that ultimately we're going to see what this, what this pat, at, least, at least where God led me in this passage, is that God wants an undivided heart. God wants an undivided heart. From who? From us. Okay? That's your message for today. We can wrap up and go home. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? And so let's let's look at Genesis 29, and I just I'm going to read through some of this, and we may we may kind of read through the whole chapter. I don't know how it's all going to shake out as as I work through it, but I just want to read through Genesis 29. I just want y'all to really kind of listen. Now remember where we picked up last time was that Jacob is on the run. He and his mother decided they were going to come up with this plan to deceive Isaac, their father. So that Jacob would steal the blessing from Esau after he'd already stolen Esau's birthright. And the consequences of this decision, because they took matters into their own hands, was that Jacob, because Esau was so enraged by what Jacob had done to him, now twice that um, Rebekah tells Jacob, listen, you you need to leave because your brother wants to kill you. And so go back to to Aram or Haran is where his, his mother's family was from. Go back and stay with them for a little while. Let things cool off and then come back home. And little did Rebecca know that she would never see Jacob again. And so he's on the run. He goes to Haran to find his wife. And here in uh, Genesis 29, we, we begin to see the story of Jacob in this foreign land, which is the land of his ancestors. And there we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 29 where he meets Rachel for the very first time. So look at what it says in Genesis 29. It says, Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying beside it. And... For out of that well the flocks were watered, and and the stone on the well's mouth was large. Now keep that in mind. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would would roll away the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and then put the stone back in place. And Jacob said, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said, is it well with him? And he said, yes, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together, water the sheep, and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And so while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now listen to what it says. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flocks of his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Now this is not like a big kiss on the lips, okay? This was a very Near Eastern greeting. Even today in Europe and other parts of the world, you would, to greet people, you kiss them on the cheek, right? So this is a, this is a, he's weeping. He's, he's, he knows that he's found who he's looking for. And so it says he, he kissed Rachel and wept aloud 
And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And he ran, and she ran and told her father. And when Laban ho- heard the news, he ran to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him. See what I'm saying? They, this was a, a Middle Eastern greeting. They kissed each other on the cheek. And so, he, so Laban kisses Jacob on the cheek and brought him to his house. And Laban said, surely you are the bone of my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And then Laban told Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now Leah's eyes were, it's some, some translations say delicate, some say weak, okay? Apparently, something's going on with her eyes in, in comparison to Rachel. Because it says that, Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Isn't that sweet? But that's, that's profound if you really think about it. Then Jacob said to Laban, okay, seven years, give me my wife so that I may go into her, and for my time is completed. And so Laban gathered all the people together. He made a feast, but in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her, and Laban also gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So now Laban has pulled the big trickaroo on Jacob. And remember what Jacob had already done to his own father and brother, right? It's kind of a little bit of a you reap what you, what you sow stuff here. And I'm not justifying it. It was, it was really a messed up situation. We'll see that more later in just a minute. And so he wakes up, he sees it's Leah, it's not Rachel. He says, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Remember, Jacob deceived his brother and his father. Laban said, it's, it's so done, it is not so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So just complete the week of the, the marriage ceremony for this one, and we'll give you the other one also for serving me another seven years. So Laban's really getting, you know, his money's worth out of Jacob. But Jacob did so and completed his week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife, and Bilhah, his, her servant. And so Jacob went to Rachel, into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban another seven years. Now let's just finish the chapter, and we're going to break it down. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated or unloved, it's a strong word. It's, it's kind of like when, you know, when Jesus is saying, if you, if you don't hate your mother and your brother and your son and your daughter more than, you know, in a, in a, you're not worthy of following me, right? Like, uh, Jesus doesn't want us to, to practically hate our mother and our brother and our son and our daughter. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's talking about in terms of preference. When you love anybody else above God, right, that is... That is our priorities are what are out of whack. So it's it's kind of it's kind of like that. You need to understand. It's not that Jacob hated Leah. It's like I hate you, woman. You know, but it's that he loved Rachel what 
so much more. In preference, he just had so much more love for Rachel that Leah felt hated. She felt rejected. And so it goes on to say that Leah conceived and bore a son, named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Man, you can, you can hear the desperation in her heart, right? She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also, and she named him Simeon. And then she bore another son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me, for I've borne him three sons, and therefore she named him Levi, or Levi. And then she conceived again and bore him a son, and this time she said, I will praise the Lord because she called his name Judah. And then she ceased praying. Now, to save us a little bit of time, the way that, as you kind of see what's happening here, is that Leah does have four children. God remembered Leah because she, he, he had compassion for her because she, he understood that she was, she was unloved by her husband. But then Rachel was barren, and so then the two sisters start to get into this what? This competition with each other. And so Rachel ends up giving her maidservant to Jacob, so he has two children with her. Then Leah does the same thing, and then he has two children with Leah's maidservant. And then finally, Leah has a child, and then at the end, finally Rachel, which was again the one that Jacob really loved, finally she gave birth to a son, and she named him Joseph. That's where Joseph comes from. But you see all of these, these dynamics at work in this, in this story, and it's, it's really, it's really kind of heartbreaking. I just want to be honest with you. It's, it's, really, it's really tragic in many ways. And we're going we're gonna to talk through that today a little bit as we look at a, at, at a bigger application. That, that yes, this happened in real life, this, this is in a historical account, but there's something much, much bigger at play here that God can, that we can learn from this example that hopefully will get us right with God in our own way, in our own heart. Because God wants an undivided heart. So, you know, there's nothing really more wonderful in the world than finding true love. Than finding true love. I mean, some of the greatest stories ever told, some of the greatest books ever written, some of the greatest movies ever made are what kind of stories? They're love stories. And we, and we understand that and we, we identify with that, again, because these stories and these accounts they're really just pointing us to a bigger way, a bigger story. That there is a love story that God has written, and we are part of that story. That's why we get so emotionally wrapped up and identify with these kind of stories. And there's really nothing more wonderful in life than finding true love. So that's what Jacob here, he's coming to find his wife in this whole encounter here, and notice what he's he sees Rachel for the very first time, and it seems like that this is one of those situations where it was what? Love at first sight. Because he immediately, what does he do? He goes and rolls this massive stone like he's, he's what's he doing for Rachel? He's showing off for her, right? 
He's like, hey, I'm going to show her how strong I am and how capable I am, and I'm going to go, and I'm not just going to roll the stone off of the well, but I'm going to water her flock for her, which was not an easy job, right? You're getting water out of the well. You're probably pouring it in some type of a trough. It takes hours to do this. Not an easy task. But Jacob, you know, he just he sees Rachel. Something about her just it really caught his attention. It looks like there's some kind of love at first sight here. And we see his love for Rachel was was so sincere and so authentic that even after serving Laban for how long? Seven years. To him, it seemed like just what? Just a few days. So there's, there's something here that he feels, and he found true love. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I think any of us that have experienced that in life know exactly what you're talking about, know exactly what I'm talking about. Listen to what it says in the Song of Solomon. It says, set me as a seal over your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is stronger than death. Its jealousy is unrelenting as the grave. Its sparks are fiery flames, the fiercest blaze of all. Mighty waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all the wealth of his house for love, his offer would be utterly scorned. So the Bible tells us and has many, many, many examples about the beautiful, wonderful gift of God for a man to find a woman and discover what it means to have really true love for somebody. What a gift, what a blessing. The Bible says the man who finds a wife finds a good thing, a good thing, one of the greatest blessings in the world. On the flip side, there's probably nothing in life more tragic and loving somebody and feeling left unloved. Feeling unwanted. As I read this story, you know, I really identify with Leah. Now again, I don't know, the way that I read scripture, and maybe some of you guys were, were thinking the same thing. So first of all, I was like, how did Jacob not know, Right? I mean, he'd been with Leah, he'd been with Rachel, he'd lived with them how long? Seven years. Now, they're not identical twins. Obviously, they looked a little bit different. He was in love with Rachel. He spent a lot of time with her. So, like, what's going on here? How could he be, oh, surprised, all of a sudden he wakes up in the morning and realizes that he did not consummate his marriage night with the one that he really loved. Now, the best guess that I, I can give you, the best suggestion that I can make is that we can see that ancient customs many times, and they still do this in places like India today, is that the bride, during the wedding week, remains what? Veiled. Like completely veiled. And, and many times throughout the, the wedding ceremony and the wedding celebration and the wedding week and even the wedding night, is that the bride will not remove her veil until the next morning. So that's a pretty good explanation. Now still, you know, did he not have any idea? Did he not have any clue? I don't know. All I know is that he was surprised it really wasn't Leah's fault, and it really wasn't Jacob's fault. Now Laban, the father-in-law, he's probably the one to blame to put them in this kind of situation, okay? But I feel really, really bad for Leah, because she just wanted to be what? She just wanted to be loved. Like, this was her husband. And maybe she was involved in this plot with Laban to deceive Jacob. 
I mean, she knew that Jacob loved Rachel, so maybe she's kind of a little bit responsible for what's going on here. I don't know. It doesn't really implicitly say. But at the end of the day, they're married. You're not going to undo that. And so we begin to look at this. And again, I, I'm telling you guys, the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive in this situation. Because marriage from the beginning was intended to be for a man and for a woman to be a monogamous, faithful relationship until what? Until death. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that it's okay to have more than one wife. But the question I have for you is, once Jacob married Leah, that's done. They're married. You can't necessarily undo that. It wasn't necessarily his fault. Maybe she had a role to play, maybe not. But he really loved uh, Rachel and so all of a sudden now, he wants, he still has this love for Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel, but now he's still married. He's married to Leah. So now you're in an impossible situation that's not ideal, to say the what? To say the least. This is not an ideal situation. Because from that day forward, now that he has two wives who, oh, by the way, just happen to be what? Sisters. Can you imagine the Jerry Springer dysfunction that's going to be taking place in this, in this household? jealousy and competition and we see it all throughout this chapter i mean he and and i'm sure there's many days that jacob was just completely overwhelmed and i'm sure that the sisters were overwhelmed and you've got all of this division in the household so yeah it's not a good situation it's not an ideal situation but what i want you to see here is that leah just wanted to be loved and it's interesting that god it says that god remembered her God remembered Leah because she was what? Unloved. So maybe you feel that way. Maybe you've been in that situation. Maybe it's, you know, whatever relationship. It could be a, a parent-child relationship, a marriage relationship, siblings, whatever it may be. And maybe you feel like you're not wanted, you're not loved. Maybe you feel like your love's not reciprocated back to you in that situation. And what I want to encourage you with today is that God remembers you. He has compassion for you. And you want to, let me tell you ultimately why, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, is because God knows exactly what it feels like to be what? Unloved. Unwanted. Rejected. So he knows how you feel, and he cares enough about you, and he loves you, and he wants you to turn to him in that situation. So what does he do? He blesses Leah with the ability to conceive and have children. And you can just hear the desperation in her voice. Now she's beginning to bear children again. Thinking about from an ancient uh, Middle Eastern context, as a, as a husband, I mean, excuse me, as a wife, the greatest thing you could do is to perpetuate your family line by giving your husband what? Children and specifically sons. Right? Because that was, that was to ensure and to guarantee that the family name and the family line was going to be perpetuated for generations, at least for the next generation. And so it was considered to be a blessing. You were able to do that. And here you see Leah. And you see when Reuben is born, she says, now my husband will what? Will finally love me. But guess what, guys? It wasn't enough. Then another son was born, and then another son was born. And by the time Judah is born, the first, the fourth-born son, I think Leah, I think she had a little bit of a, of a breakthrough in her own faith. 
Because the first three sons that were born, she's still thinking about Jacob doesn't love me. This is going to be what it takes to get him to love me. This is all that I need to do so that finally my husband will love me because she felt unwanted. She felt rejected. But if you notice when she gave birth to Judah, the the fourth son of Jacob, notice what she says. It says, this time, this time I will praise who? Praise the Lord. I think Leah had to come to the place. And I'm not saying that she was perfect. I'm not saying that she still didn't struggle. But she wanted Jacob, her husband, to love her so badly, so much. She was desperate for that love. But she knew he was in love with another woman. She had her sister. He really loved Rachel. But finally she said, you know what? He may not love me the way that I need to be loved. But he does. But the Lord does. And I will praise the Lord. And that's where you get the name Judah. Judah means praise. Kind of makes you think that Bonnie Raitt was singing to Leah in those days, right? I can't make you love me if you don't. You can't make a heart feel something it won't. I know she struggled. I know she wrestled with that. But see, the first rule about real love, the first rule about true love is that true love cannot be forced. Cannot be forced. Can you make anyone else love you? You can't. Because by definition, love can't be manipulated or coerced or bribed or whatever it may be, is that at the end of the day, the very definition of love, in order for love to be love, it must be free. It's got to be a choice. That's what makes love love, is that it's free. And let's just all be honest. Do we really want to make somebody love us anyway? You want them to want to love you. You want them to make that what? choice to choose you freely without any manipulation or control and so here we see that Leah was unwanted and she was unloved but I think that she was beginning to learn that you know what maybe my husband is not loving me in the way that I want and I need but I'm going to give God my heart and I'm going to turn my attention to the Lord now Let's talk about love for just a second. There, there's, there's a lot of different aspects about love. See, in, in, in English, we have one word, basically, for love. And you could say, you know, I love pizza on one hand, and I love my, my wife. Obviously, we're talking about what? Two different things. Like, we, we definitely love our spouse or our children infinitely more than we love a piece of pizza. But we use that word but it means different things. And, and the Bible, especially the Greek, when we get into the New Testament, there are many different words for love that we get lost, that we lose in translation. Because in English, we really just have one word that we use. And so there's different types and different, different aspects of love. So I want, to think, I want you to think about it in this way. Most love is love that can be multiplied. Let me give you an example. When you, it, it, for those of you who are parents, and you, and you have that first child, and you look
look at that child for the very first time, and you think in your mind, there is no way on earth that I could ever love somebody more than this baby. Like, all the love in my heart is right here in this, in this precious little child. There's no way in the world I could ever love somebody more. I'm not going to have any more love left once I stop loving this baby. And then you have your what? Your second child. And somehow you have just, you just have more what? You got more love. And you're like, well, I love my first child. Wow. But I still got more love. My love's been multiplied now because I have just the same amount of love. Even though, parents, we all do have favorites. You know you, you, know you got favorites out there, parents. No, we shouldn't have favorites. We shouldn't play favorites. But I have just as much love for this second child as I do for my first child. And then sometimes, like, we have three boys, and I look at all three of my boys. I'm like, I love them all. Like, I love them all equally. I love them all the same. I love them all with as much intensity and, and commitment as I could any, any one of them. So most of the time, love is multiplied. When you have siblings, it's the same way. You grow up in a family. You got brothers and sisters. You're like, man, you, just, you love everybody, right? You got friends. Maybe you have a big group of friends that you grow up with, and you're like, man, I love all of my friends. But there's one type of love that can't be multiplied. It can only be divided. And that's love for man. You see, God created us in a way that we can have all of this love for all of these other people, and that's why we need to understand there are different types of love. Phileo is like brotherly love, and and then we got agape, which is that unconditional love. But there's this, there's this type of love that you have for your husband or your wife or your spouse. And that is a unique kind of love because that is the kind of love that we only have the capacity to love one person at a time. Because if we try to love more than one person in that way, in that romantic marriage type, we're talking about, y'all understand what I'm saying, Jacob loved Rachel. He didn't have anything left over for who? For Leah. Because God didn't create us that way. That's why she felt unloved. That's why he had this intense love for Rachel. He loved her. He, that's who he wanted to marry. So he did, he wasn't able to love both wives at the same time. Why? Because that's not the way we were created because when you give your heart to somebody in that marriage relationship it's meant to be exclusively between two people who become what one not three people who become one not multiple people who become one two the two shall become what one in flesh and in spirit and every single aspect of our lives we become united with this person and that's why the marriage relationship is so very unique and we see that playing out right here in the relationship that Jacob has with his two wives Jesus said that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. I think we can take that and understand in a way that applies to the marriage relationship. You can only be truly devoted to how many people at a time? One person at a time in the marriage relationship. Because you'll either love one and begin to hate the other, or you'll be able to be really devoted to one, and you'll start to despise the other, and it just doesn't work. In Jacob's marriage in this situation, it just was not going to work. 
No matter how hard Leah tried, I don't know how hard Jacob tried, but he just couldn't do it because that's not the way God designed marriage. God created marriage to be this exclusive relationship, the the bond between husband and wife. Faithfully, the two become one. That's why when we talk about finding a marriage partner, we talk about have you found the one? You know what I'm saying? Hey, 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 Dad, I think I, I found her. She's the what? She's the one. That's the one. That's the one I want to spend the rest of my life with. Hey, he's the one that I want to marry, that I want to spend the rest of my In other words, there is no one else, and that's the way that God designed marriage. And that's why we see in Scripture that maybe the most prominent and the most powerful illustration that God uses to as an example or as a, as a way to communicate his relationship with us is that he uses the marriage relationship, doesn't he? He talks about being the husband, and we are his what? His bride. Why would God want us to understand our relationship with him in the same way that we understand the exclusive committed, faithful, lifelong relationship between a husband and a wife. It's because those relationships, a husband and a wife, and our relationship with God, those relationships are very, very similar. And you'll see a little bit more why in just a moment. So marriage conveys the purest expression of love that we will ever experience in this life. So a heart divided, like Jacob's, is a heart that can be devoted almost to no one at all. It's like being a double-minded person. And so it just doesn't work. And like I said, Jacob's marriage to Leah and Rachel was doomed from the beginning. It was not ever going to work, no matter what, because marriage is only meant for two hearts to become one. So this story about Jacob and Leah and his wife Rachel it's really trying to help us understand a bigger what? A bigger story. And that's where I want to kind of finish this message today is because it really has everything to do with you and with me. Now, I'm going to read a verse to you as I, as I make my next point, but this verse comes to, from the book of Ezekiel, and this, this verse has always just amazed me. Now, remember what I said earlier, is that the the relationship that we have as God's people, his bride, and he is our husband, so to speak, Jesus, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the what? The church, and he, he sets that example up for us, is that this is how Christ loves us, and this is how we are to respond to his love, and that's a picture of marriage, and God sets that picture up early in the book of Exodus when he brings the children of Israel to Mount Sinai, and there on the mountain, he enters into a marriage covenant with Israel. God got married. He got betrothed, if you will. And he, 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 he puts himself personally, he attaches himself in this relationship with a bunch of imperfect people. You know what the greatest definition of love I've ever heard? Real love, unconditional love. Love is making a commitment 
It's an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. That's what God did with us. Beginning with Israel and even to this day, he's like, I'm making an unconditional commitment regardless of how you feel and regardless of how I feel because love is more than a what? It's more than a feeling. It involves feelings. I get that, but it's much more than that. And God is saying, listen, I'm making an unconditional commitment to you and you are an imperfect person. And that began in Israel. And so if you see in the book of Ezekiel, God is talking to his people. And you listen to what he says in Ezekiel chapter 6. This is amazing to me. He's talking about their idolatry. How the children of Israel continually, perpetually, defiantly. Who were they married to? The Lord. Yehovah. And who did they run off chasing all the time? Other what? Other gods. I want to worship that God that way. I want to go worship that God over there. I want to go serve this God over there. And listen to what God says. Listen to what the Lord says. He said, Ezekiel 6, 8. 6, 9. Those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been crushed over their unfaithful heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go chasing after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for their abominations. And But then they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Did you pick up what God said in Ezekiel 6, 9? He said, because of the unfaithfulness of his own people, the people of Israel, he said that his heart was crushed. I want you to think about that. God's love is perfect. He, if anybody is perfect in how they love, it's who? But at the same time, his heart is what? Crushed. Every time we reject him. So let me, the reason I say that is because I want you to step back for a minute and think for just one second. How is it possible that the God of the universe, he is the holy one, the creator, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing. He is like this untouchable, impenetrable unaffected, like nothing in the world could ever really hurt him, like he's God, he can't die, whatever that may be. But at the same time, because of the way that he has allowed himself to be in a relationship with imperfect people, he set himself up to have his heart, what? Broken. Crushed. That word in Hebrew, in Ezekiel 6, 9, it's this word that means shattered to pieces. Completely just crushed, broken hearted. Did you know that you could break God's heart? You could crush him? He gives us the ability or the power, if it were, to crush him. Have you ever considered that? Because when we reject him, when we refuse to receive his love, when we turn our backs on him, when we betray him with all the other things of this world, when we refuse to to 
show him our love and our faithfulness and our commitment, guys, is that it breaks God's heart. You see, there's a tremendous amount of risk involved with love. God took a big risk with us. He took a risk because he knew that if I'm going to create a a race of people, a race of of beings in my own image, and I'm going to give them the freedom, freedom to love me. Because remember, what did we establish earlier? Can you make anybody love you? God can't make you love him either. So if I'm going to create these these creatures in my own image and give them the freedom to love me, I'm taking a tremendous risk because if they have the freedom to choose me and to love me, they also have the freedom what? To reject me and to not love me. To hate me. But somehow, some way, God thought that risk was worth what? It was a risk worth taking. Now, the reason I say that is because that's the way we have to look at love as well. Some of us could take this approach to love. You know what? Maybe you've been hurt before. Maybe you've been crushed before. Maybe you've been heartbroken before. And you can say, well, you know what? The the risk for that pain is too great, so I'm just never going to open myself up to be what? To be loved ever again. That's one way to approach it. I, I don't recommend that. But a lot of people, they just can't take that risk of giving them their heart to anyone else again because they, they're afraid that they're going to be heartbroken and crushed all over again. But if you take that approach, you are missing out on what could be, if I think I'm the way that I see life, that the greatest gift in life is the gift of people who are able to what? Love each other. Even with all of the risk that's involved, even with all of the potential for pain, all of the potential that could happen when we hurt each other and disappoint each other, and we're going to do those things, but there's so much joy and beauty and blessing and just amazing joy when it comes to us having this opportunity to experience the greatest gift probably that the world's ever seen, which is the gift of love. Better, is, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. I've pondered that before. I think, I think I agree. God took that risk. And so we see that God was setting himself up because of that risk for heartbreak and pain and rejection And we have the ability and the power to break his heart and to crush him. But he did this, and you say, but why would God do that? Why? It's because God knew that there was something more powerful, something more amazing, something more beautiful that was only possible in a a situation where he had people who were free to love him and also free to reject him. Because in the end, what does God really want? He does want a family. He does want a bride. He does want a people, but he wants people who want him. That's all that he wants. He just wants the people who love him to be with him forever, to spend eternity with him forever, to be part of his family forever, but he doesn't want anybody to be there that doesn't want to be there. And I think that we can say the same about all of our relationships. 
And that's what God did. He did it for true love, literally. Not because God needs our love. He doesn't need it, but he what? He wants it. There's a difference. He's, he is love. He gives love. That's by, by, by definition, love is, must be expressed. It must be shared. It, it's not something to be held on to, to be kept selfishly. And so we choose to find fulfillment and satisfaction in everything else under the sun. And when we do this, we are breaking God's heart by rejecting him. But God is always there waiting for us to come back, waiting for us to choose him, waiting for us to love him. So at the end, here's what I want to share with you. I'm going to, my very last point before we go is that in the end, all that God really wants is an undivided heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have what's called the Shema. Anybody ever heard of that? It's the greatest commandment. Remember Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, soul, and your strength. Guess what? That comes from the book. That comes from the Torah. That comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, and other places as well. And I want you to hear the words of the Shema. Listen to what it says. It says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And yet, and when you, there's other translations that may say it this way. The Lord our God, he is Lord alone. What's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods. Again, I see the Ten Commandments like marriage vows. To have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and health, forsaking all others, right? And that's what God wants from us. He's saying, listen, I am the Lord alone. And all I really want from you is an undivided heart. Because the way that God created us, as I've said before, is that you can't serve two masters. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, do we get that right? Do we get that right all the time? I don't. He understands that, but that's what he wants, and that's what we should strive to do, is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. How do we do that? It's simple. No, it's not simple. It is simple. It's not easy. The Bible says that we love because he what? First loved us. That's, that's the answer right there. He knows we're going to fail. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're, we're prone to wonder. He knows that we're not always going to love him with our whole heart, with all of our heart. That's part of the human condition. But the only way that we are even able to begin to love God with that whole heart is that we first have to receive his what? We've got to be able to receive his love. We love, we have the capacity to love God and others, our spouse, our children, everybody else, but primarily God, we have the capacity and ability to love because he first loved. 
who first loved us. And the more that we understand and, and are able to receive and, and believe in the love of God that has poured out into our hearts as we commune with him and walk with him in the power of the Holy Spirit, is that he does something in our hearts that gives us this beautiful opportunity and the ability to love him with an undivided God's love cannot be exhausted. You see, when God loves us and we love him and we're, we're experiencing this love with him, his love is not divided. His love is exponentially what? Multiplied. Think about that. God's love can never be exhausted. That's the only way that we're able to operate in this world in the way that he desires. And it's the way that we really want to operate as well, but we, we just, we're weak, we fail, we struggle with that. So as our praise team comes up, I'm going to share Psalm 73, verse 25. This is my, my closing scripture. We're going to sing one more song, but I want you to hear this. Listen to what Psalm 73 says. It says, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And on earth I desire no one beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My heart and my flesh may fail. But God is what? He is the strength of my heart. He is able to overcome our imperfections and our weaknesses and our inabilities to stay faithful, to love the way that he loves, because he's the one, he's the source, he's the strength of all love, of all love. And so I hope that you guys can open your hearts to God, receive his love, allow his love to flow into your hearts, and as your hearts begin to be filled with the love of God, he will fill your hearts so much, just what you need and beyond what you need, what will happen? His love will begin to what? Overflow. Naturally overflow into, into other people's lives. An undivided heart. So will you pray with me as we get prepared? We're going to sing one more song before we go. This place is always open for prayer. You can always pray where you are. If you need counsel, we try to make ourselves available, but sometimes you guys just feel like you got to leave or maybe you're wrestling with something or maybe you want somebody to pray with you i usually try to hang out here after church for a little bit after the service you don't have to run off if you need to talk if you need prayer we are available for that okay let's pray together father i just thank you so much for this this picture of love that jesus christ has set for us as he he came to lay his life down to give his very life for us and that, Lord, there's, there's no greater demonstration of love than what Jesus Christ has shown us. That God demonstrates his love towards sinners even though we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We can love, Lord, because only because you first loved us. So, God, if we're, if we're struggling, if we have, um, if we have a deficiency of love in our, in our life, whether, whether it's us or someone else, Father, help us to turn to you and, and draw from you the, the true gift of love that you and you alone can give. 
to do business with us, Lord, here today. And thank you for loving us the way that you do, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Guys, let's stand as we sing.